Welcome back to Jaffa Space, the podcast about food, farming, and environmental education. This season, we are sharing the recordings from the speaker series Acting for Change, Creating Justice, produced by Ecar Farm, an earth-based Jewish farm in Denver, Colorado. You can learn more about Ecar Farm at ecarfarm.org. This is also produced as a part of the Shemitah Project, an initiative committed to raising awareness about the Shemitah tradition in Judaism as a relevant commentary on contemporary issues. You can learn more about the Shemitah Project at shemitahproject.org. A link is available in the episode notes. This final episode features co-hosts Hannah Perez-Postman and Adam Brock, and their guest speakers, Candy C. DeBaca, a member of the Denver City Council representing the 9th District, and Yoshi Silverstein, the founder and executive director of the Mitsui Collective. They discuss environmental justice and how to create equal access and rights to a healthy environment, including land, water, air, and food, through the lens of Shemitah. You will also hear about what brought them to their work as activists and what we can all do to contribute to and organize for a more just society for everyone. Enjoy. It is time now, and what a time to be alive in this great turning we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning we shall learn to lead in Uh, hello everybody welcome welcome on this sunday to um uh, acting for change creating justice acting for change uh shemitah speaker series this is the sixth and uh final conversation in this iteration of the series and we are glad to have you all joining us today. Um, that song was We Shall Be Known with, uh, sung by Ma Muse and the Thrive Choir of Oakland. So this speaking series, Acting for Change, Creating Justice is hosted by Ecar Farm in Denver. And it is a six part series exploring the connections between the ancient Jewish agricultural technology of Shemitah and contemporary movements for justice and liberation. So thank you to all of you who've joined us for the last six months through the series and those who are joining for the first time. Welcome. Everything is available online at um, ecarfarm.org backslash Shemitah and we have all of the previous conversations in video form up on the website. And you can also listen at the Hazon podcast um, is the Jaffe Space podcast hosted by our partners at Hazon who are recording this conversation and have recorded all of the previous conversations. So thank you. Um, so because this is being recorded, uh, we would love for you to stay muted if possible during the conversation with the screen on if you can, which is more engaging. And we also welcome you to put any questions that you have in the chat as the conversation goes on. And Adam, who will be moderating the conversation today, can um, bring them up as they as they are relevant to the conversation. And we like to start all of our our speaker series sessions off with a land acknowledgement. This one is put together by uh, Perry Hardine of the Pearl Stone Retreat Center and 
um, co-edited co by Adam Brock. We gather virtually today on stolen land, land that belongs to no one, but that was tended lovingly for thousands of years by Cheyenne, Ute, Arapaho, and the 48 tribes. We did not receive permission to be here, and no amount of words can do justice to the suffering that those nations experienced at the hands of European settlers. Today, we find ourselves in another moment of struggle. The global pandemic is still very alive in many parts of the world. Extreme weather is ravaging the landscape and our democracy is in peril. And still the sun rises, the birds sing, the rain cools the parched soil, and still love happens and is woven into the fabric of our days. We gather here today in the hope, always present, that love can heal, that the traumas of the past and present can yet be overcome with compassionate learning, collaboration, and graceful action. These words, while a meaningful reminder of our present conditions, are an offering and just one step on the journey of acting in the name of justice and repair. May this humble gathering serve as a small movement towards remembering our true place in the dance of life, a small step on our long path back home. Thank you again all for joining us for this uh, last piece of the series. We hope to hear from you um, on how the impact of this, this process of exploring Shemitah has, has landed with you and in your communities and any follow-up you have uh, is graciously appreciated. So please feel free to send any emails to ecar at ecarfarm.org. And most people here have been here for several months. And so we already know what Shemitah is, but for anybody new who's joining us, Shemitah uh, means release. And it is the seventh year in a seven year ancient Jewish agricultural calendar in which all fields are, are let to become commons and are not tilled. So it's a rest for the land and also um, a rest for the people. So the land becomes commons, everyone, animals, strangers, um, your neighbors are free to eat of all land and there is no buying or selling of food. And it also is a year when any debt that has been accrued is released. And so we're using this as this framework to really dive into contemporary justice issues and what we can do as Jews to integrate our ancient practices and contemporary needs. Um, this particular conversation, we will be focusing on environmental justice. And so a quote from the Shemitah texts that we're focusing on um, says, your field you are not to sow, your vineyard you are not to prune, the Sabbath of Sabbath ceasing shall there be for the land. Now the Sabbath of yield of the land is for you, for eating, for you, for your hired hand, and for your resident settler who sojourn with you, and for your domestic animal and the wild beasts that are in your land shall be all its produce to eat. Um, and what I particularly like about this quote is that it combines both the rest for the land and the rest and need of food for the people, which I feel like is a nice intersection 
to segue into our conversation about environmental justice, which is how can we show up better for the land and for the people who live on it and just examine and explore the ways um, rights to healthy, clean water, food, air are not equally distributed and what our roles and responsibilities in that are. Joining us today, we've got two great speakers um, who have uh, who will be in conversation with us. Our, we have Candy C. DeBaca, who is a member of the Denver City Council in the 9th District. Um, Candy is a proud fifth generation native of Northeast Denver, Colorado, and a graduate of Manuel High School and the University of Denver. Raised by a single mother and grandparents, Candy understands the importance of tight-knit communities and stepping up for neighbors in need. She's also the first LGBTQ Latina and first democratic socialist to serve on the Denver City Council. Candy is a fierce advocate for justice and against the criminalization of poverty, environmental racism, and the displacement of Denver's black and brown communities. And joining us uh, also, we have Yoshi Silverstein, who is a Chinese Ashkenazi American Jew and educator, coach, speaker, husband, and father. Yoshi was the director of the Jaffe Fellowship at Hazon from its launch through its first four cohorts, catalyzing the growth and leadership of over 60 emerging professionals working across the US and Canada in the realm of Jewish relationship to land, food, culture, climate, and community. He holds over two decades of experience in both the Jewish and secular outdoor food, farming, and environmental education realms and is also the founder of the Mitsui Collective. Welcome Yoshi and Candy. Thank you so much for joining us today. And here to facilitate this conversation is my friend and co-host Adam Brock. Thanks Hannah for that wonderful grounding and introduction. And uh, thank you all for showing up for however many of these sessions you've you've joined us and most of all today, thank you, Candy and Yoshi, uh, for joining us for what uh, for a conversation that honestly I've been looking forward to since we booked it like six months ago. Um, Y'all are both rock stars that I've had the pleasure of being able to be in a beloved community with uh, for for years, and um, I'm just so excited to see what alchemy comes of uh, this conversation together. So we we always love to start uh, just by hearing. Each of you share a little bit about your own journey. You know, we, we heard Hannah give an introduction of some of your, your credentials, but, but I always love hearing in your own words, you know, what, what brought you to the place uh, as, as a fighter for peace and justice uh, that each of you are today? What, what are some of the key, um, key moments in that path that you want to share with us? So uh, Candy, maybe you can start us off and then hand it off to Yoshi. Yeah, definitely. Um, and cut me off if I go too long. Um, but thank you all for having me this morning. Um, my work started before I was aware that I was um, practicing activism or practicing protection of land and community. Um, I was a high school student at Manuel High School here in Denver when the first wave of education reform hit Denver public schools. And so our school being half black, half brown, 100% low income. We were a petri dish for the school district. 
And so as students, um, we were experimented on with co-locations and eventually um, high school shutdowns and restarts. And I was a freshman um, when I went home for the summer and came back to school the next year to three schools within a school. And me and my siblings were all split up in different schools and you know, crossing the stairs or being in the wrong staircase resulted in trespassing tickets from the Denver Police Department. And so, you know, this was a huge change that nobody in our community or student body had any say over. And it just felt wildly unfair to me. And that's where I began to plug in um, to my own activism about what we should be entitled to, what should be given to students at our school. And it was largely curriculum based and, um, you know, rooted in some very like surface level requests, but it snowballed when I finally graduated um, as a first generation high school graduate, moved out to San Diego and kind of just realized um, the game was rigged on a larger scale. And that is what politicized me, um, seeing the juxtaposition of my experience in school um, compared to my peers at the University of San Diego or what many people called the University of Spoiled Daughters. Um, and, and to see that juxtaposition and know that people I grew up with should be in the seats with me in San Diego, but couldn't for very um, structural reasons, it, it, it emboldened me and really drove me to this life of activism and that when I came home turned into starting Project Voice, a nonprofit that was designed to insert youth voice into education policy. Um, they're 15 years old today, that organization is still around. And now their goal is to insert youth voice into all kinds of, of public policy. And so having started that organization, um, having experienced a range of inequities all the way from educational inequity to environmental racism. Um, it was necessity every single time that brought me to the table uh, in these fights. It was a level of self-preservation that made me want to protect my community, fight for my community, um, protect our land and fight for something better. And that catalyzed my race for city council and that's kind of what drives everything, every decision we're making around policy and power building in community now. I'll kick it over to Yoshi. Thanks, Candy, and really good to hear a little bit about your story. Um, so I'm, in the context of this conversation, I think um, one of the primary threads that's gone throughout my whole life is really being a child of the diaspora. And um, when I think about what that means, I think about a disconnection from land, a journeying process, and then an ongoing process of, of new connection, of reconnection, um, whether that's to the sort of the original or the new or both, and that constant sort of process of journeying forward and also remaining connected and tied, you know, through memory, through lineage, through all these different um, means to sort of like where the like the original place was. And so um, so in my in my family, my dad's side of the family, um, 
are Ashkenazi Eastern European Jews from Poland, Latvia, Lithuania primarily. Um, and my dad was born in the Boston area and then grew up in Southern California um, before meeting my mom in uh, medical school. And on my mom's side of the family, um, are, uh, is Chinese from um, Canton province, primarily in Han Chinese. And um, they made their way to the States through actually British Guyana or Guyana when it was under, uh, when it was uh, colonized by British, um, uh, where my grandmother grew up and then made their way to Texas. And so that's where my mom was born and raised. And then, like I said, she, she and my dad met in medical school. Um, and so that was their own sort of, their own you know family journey. And what I think is, um, really interesting and inspiring for me is the way in which they sort of recognize that disconnection and sort of launch this process of reconnecting, both thinking about how do we want to build a family together and where do we want to do that and what does that life look like and sort of really um, giving a really amazing, I think, foundation for, for my sister and me. And so they ended up moving to Spokane, Washington, which is where I grew up, which is on the eastern side of the state, 20 minutes from the Idaho border. Uh, and I went to a Montessori preschool that was housed in an arboretum. So recess was literally just like, go play in the trees. Um, I started, you know, playing music when I was little, doing martial arts, spending a lot of time out in the mountains, skiing in the winter, going, you know, um, going camping in the, in the summer. And so really all of these different um, aspects of my childhood growing up are really amazing in which there was just all these different pieces of me that had the opportunity to really be aligned and connected with my family, with my community, with the place I was in. Um, I also grew up in a Jewish community that was sort of radically inclusive before it was trendy. Um, you know, small Jewish community, I think folks sort of, um, you know, for lots of different reasons, maybe one of it is just like when there's only so many Jews in an area, you like can't really afford to be exclusive, right? It's like, cool, you want to be in the city, like, great, you know, so like my mom converted, she became temple president twice, you know, all, all these things. Um, and so that was the foundation I had growing up. Uh, as I started to go out into the into the bigger world, and I got older and through high school and then college, etc., that's when I really started running into more of um, just more obstacles and more boundaries and sort of finding finding out, for example, like, oh, there's parts of the Jewish world that, you know, not only frown upon the intermarriage of my parents, but sort of are saying like, that is like killing the Jews, right? You know, um, coming into against, you know, racism, um, obviously just learning more in general about about racism, about environmental issues, about environmental racism, just seeing all of those ways in which like the world is not, you know, always such a rosy place. And so I think as I um, have moved into and through my career, one of the, the connecting pieces I've really been thinking like, how do I bring a sense of both alignment for me in terms of my own my own work as a professional, bringing in all the pieces that I feel most strongly aligned with. So. Um, all of this really through a lens of embodiment. So my connection to my own body, to my sort of movement practices and breathing practices and those, my connection to nature, um, to music, right? To song, to ritual, and then creating spaces um, for other folks to also be able to experience the same, right? Spaces that are radically inclusive, right? That center folks who've historically been marginalized and give folks a chance where they're, who they are in their bodies and their identities are, not obstacles, but actually what allows them to be present in the space together. So that's sort of the connective thread um, through my work. And the last thing I'll just say is 
which I was going to maybe say at the very top, whatever I am, um, which, but I, I live now in the, um, on Erie, Mississauga, Haudenosaunee land, um, currently known as Shaker Heights, Ohio, right outside the city line of Cleveland. Um, so, which is, which where my wife's family has been for several generations. We moved here just about two years ago and have been sort of going through that process in the middle of pandemic and all, but of like really thinking, what does it mean for us to root ourselves here? Um, you know, how do we connect to the existing roots through family and community and culture? And also what are the obligations and responsibilities that we have, whether to the people who have genuine, you know, indigenous roots here, other communities have been here for a long time and really just like playing with like, what does it mean to root yourself in a community um, and really sort of try to grow those roots over, you know, hopefully as my Texan rabbi would say, God willing and the crick don't rise, like hopefully over many decades to come. Nice. Nice. Thank you both for, for sharing that context. I think it really is going to help help us uh, as listeners understand more as, as this conversation unfolds. Um, and, you know, again, the theme today is environmental justice. Um, so maybe if, if you're both willing, I would love to hear your dreams of what environmental justice looks like to you and, and what, how that shows up for you in how you show up in the world. What, 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 how do your actions uh, play one part in, in creating that dream of, of justice for, for the land and the people on it? Awesome, I'll kick us off. Um, for me, you know, when I think about people who have the secrets or the ancestral wisdom to take care of the land, to heal the land in the ways that we need to, I think a lot about how colonization really stripped us not only of, of our humanity, but of our connection to the land. Um, our people, our indigenous people didn't see themselves uh, as owners of land. You know, we, we saw ourselves as belonging to the land and that relationship changed with colonization. And when we think about what colonization was in service of, um, you think of our modern economic system and how capitalism exploits anything and everything that it has um, an, an ability to exploit from people and labor to land and resources. And so for me, when we talk about environmental racism or environmental justice, we can't talk about it separate from a radical shift in our economic system that decommodifies land. Um, the commodification of land is our biggest barrier to protecting and healing our land. Um, and, and in order for us to, to get to that space of decommodification, we have to change the way we exist on this planet. We have to change the economic structure first, in my opinion. And so all of the work that I'm doing is trying to not only prepare us to actually have those conversations that seem so radical to some, but to simultaneously create the infrastructure for an alternative, for shared ownership um, or communal ownership of the things that we currently um, commodify and own as, in our individualistic society. So that's what I'm trying to do. And that's my big dream is to have the infrastructure in place for these alternatives when we have the courage to shift um, radically on paper and formally. 
you know, no big deal. Just totally changing our economic system. No big wow. deal. No big deal. You said big dreams. Leave me, I love it. No, let me dream. <laughs> it's my dream too, Candy. And it is just it's so great to hear those words coming coming from you as someone who's sitting on, on our city council. Um, all right, Yoshi, what about you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I love and appreciate everything that you that you just said, Candy. And I think um, what I appreciate too is just in terms of this conversation is, you know, through your work generally and certainly on the on the city council, like this way that you're really approaching the structural, right, and the policy and those things, which I think are critically important. Um, and I'm sort of holding, you know, or at least in my in work, um, sort of the other um, side of that, which is thinking about how do we bring, how do we sort of bring the, um, the, the personal lens within that broader context and shift. So we're shifting both the structural pieces and we're also shifting our own sort of personal practices all in tandem, right? It's not one or the other, it's all, all of it is critical work. Um, but how are we doing that? And I think um, really thinking about culture change, right? And like, you know, there's there's what, sometimes it's like, what are, how are we toggling the different things, right? And sort of pushing the policies, pushing the economic and structural pieces, right? On the one hand, so that the system is working towards more equity, more justice, right? At the same time, if we don't, if we're not also changing our own personal practices and sort of perspectives and ways that we're again aligning with the world or not, like we can change everything structurally and it won't stick because we don't have it, right? And at the same time, the opposite is also true if we're not changing the structure, right? So, um, so I, so you know, as I was thinking about this too, is thinking about what are what are some of the unique um, or or maybe particular lenses that Jewish learning and wisdom and practice bring that really ground me in, in the work. And as I've been thinking about this, um, I think one of the really interesting things is how Judaism com combines or holds the personal, the interpersonal, and the structural in 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 all of it. So um, you know, it, it Jewish practice is not a faith that is exclusively about the personal, right? There are elements of um, what are my own personal ethics? What are the practices that are for my own sort of individual spirituality? Certainly that it's in a really important core piece, but there's so much about Judaism that's also about our relationships and obligations between my, my neighbor and lots of circles, you know, in terms of proximity, there's like immediate and further out and also with with the earth, right? With land, with um, with just the the question of ownership and shmita is one is sort of one of the one of the more meta aspects of all of these different uh, laws that are relating to how do we relate to land and ownership and acknowledging that we are not actually the owners of land, right? It's something greater that there's a collective sense of ownership that we have obligations to the marginalized folks in our communities, right, who don't have the ability to provide for themselves. There's all sorts of laws that have to do with that. Um, and then I also think about Shemitah and then, uh, you know, maybe this has come up in prior conversations where there's super Shemitah, like as if Shemitah wasn't radical enough that every seven years, like everything goes fallow and you release all deaths, blah, blah, blah. There's a super Shemitah, which is the Jubilee, the Yovel every 50 years in which like it was a complete reset, right, of like the entire system which I think is just like fascinating to me that there's this understanding that even with Shemitah in place and these sort of smaller micro level laws of like, I'm thinking like Peya, you mark the corners of the field, right? For folks to come, you have, there's like Maaser, there's all these laws targeting different aspects of the system. But saying even with all those in place, inequity is bound to make its way into the system because that's 
that's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's human nature or some level there's a, but there's a recognition of that. And so it's like every 50 years, we're going to need a larger level reset where we take this big step back and say, okay, like what has all happened in this sort of like marketplace and like, we're just needing to like reset and reallocate and do this and like, you know, make, make reparations here and give land back there. And like, all, like it is like core to our tradition. Um, historically, it's unclear if Yovel, if Jubilee was ever actually observed because it's pretty challenging, but right? Like that space of dreaming and visioning, like, I mean, how amazing would, would that be to like actually put that into practice? Mm. Yeah, so great. And, and I love your, your kind of framing of what, what I kind of consider this like fractal technology is, right? It's like one day out of every seven, we rest. One year out of every seven, we rest. One, you know, 49 year cycle, it's an even bigger rest. And, and just how there was that foresight of, um, you know, on, on all these different scales needing to reset. Um, so I, I want to actually ground this in, in a very specific situation um, that, that I want to ask you about, Candy. So, you know, we, you've both been mentioning this, this idea of Shemitah and justice being so directly tied to land and ownership of land. And, and there's a situation right now in your district um, and a neighborhood that, of course, I'm very familiar with, with, with my past of, in Global Area Swansea that uh, is part of this redevelopment of the National Western Stock Show. They call it the Triangle. Um, and there was, you know, supposed to be one agreement that the city have of how that was going to be developed. And now that seems like it's changing. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that, kind of just give everybody else listening, what, what is some more context of where that's at and what you would like to see happen with that land um, towards justice? Yeah. Um, and, and it's a long, complicated process, but in a nutshell, um, the National Western Center, um, a few years back, they wanted to move and they worked with the mayor to stay in Denver, um, but they needed to figure out a partnership that would allow them to change their venue into a year-long um, global attraction. And so they partnered up with um, CSU and the city of Denver to create a relationship that was similar to the one um, created to build Auraria campus. And with that relationship that was created, um, National Western was given or extended a privilege that governments um, hold on to, and that is the privilege to use eminent domain um, for any project that is that can be justified as a public good. And so this global attraction uh, year-long event center somehow was able to justify the, the further taking of land um, in a Superfund site from largely Latino low-income communities. Um, and they split this project up into two parts. And the first part, they paid for it through a lodger's tax. The voters got to vote on it, um, over $700 million to renovate and create these event centers on this campus. Um, but the second part was called the, is called the triangle and there was no funding set aside to redevelop that. Um, this triangle incorporated several parcels of land that were taken from individuals through eminent domain. Um, it's supposed to be complementary to the campus, but it doesn't have to be a part of the campus. And 
in the entire campus, both, um, both sections, housing was never a priority. It was never part of either of the master plans for that area. And housing is our top need in the city of Denver right now. And this new parcel, the triangle, is now the largest tract of land that the city of Denver owns, um, free and clear. So there is this huge debate about what will happen with that triangle. And, and, and originally, the city was going to use a public-private partnership to develop that land. And what that means, in a nutshell, is that for the three buildings that the city has liability on, that they had to renovate, they were going to trade all of the land, I think it's over 40 acres of land, um, to a developer to allow the developer to you know, own all of that land or get all of that land for free in exchange for developing or renovating the three buildings that we needed to develop. Well, that fell apart during COVID and we attribute some of um, its demise to our very powerful community organizing over several years. And so we have an opportunity right now to fight for what can be there. And what community wants to see there is um, a massive land back reparation style return of the land to the people to do whatever we choose to do on that land, whether it's housing, um, grocery store in a food desert, or something actually meaningful on this campus. Um, the irony of the campus is that they're trying to create a global agricultural epicenter um, where we lead the world in defining and creating innovative food systems in the middle of a super fun site that has been turned into an event center right on a highway, um, displacing or dislocating original inhabitants in the neighborhood. And so I think that we've got a lot of potential to create um, something that could be innovated, something that could further this movement for land back and reparations. But we're in the process of pulling together not just the GES Latino residents, but all displaced and dislocated people in the region that feel that we are the people. And if the city of Denver is we the people and owns this land, then there should be nobody else deciding what happens on this land, but us, the people. And so we launched that campaign two weekends ago and um, calling all supporters, all friends, all uh, people who have talent, time, skills that can help us spread the word um, and bring people together to really fight for this common interest that in itself could be, you know, a Petri dish for what, for the world that we're creating um, or for the, the learning that we're unlearning and, and uh, transforming into something else. Mm, what, what an exciting vision, uh, Candy. Um, and, and also uh, such, such skill you have in taking a very complicated long process and, and distilling it down for us. So, so thank you for that. Um, 
Yeah, well, I, I, I definitely want to kind of come back to that campaign because I know in our own cohort, that's, you know, we're, we're, we're this is the last conversation in this series, but our cohort is going to continue. And one of the things I think uh, we've all expressed interest in is supporting land back movements. Um, and so if we have time later, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you see that campaign playing out and how you even strategize something like that for now. I actually want to uh, pause that because I also uh, there, there's something I've been dying to ask Yoshi as well. Um, that's, you know, on a little bit of a, a different tangent, but, you know, I think Yoshi, you have such a such a valuable perspective in the Jewish community and, and are doing such great work. And, and you happen to be the first Jew of color that we've interviewed as part of this uh, interview series. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, there's, there's this word Ashkenormativity that, that some folks in the Jewish movement might know, maybe they don't, but uh, you know, if, if you wanna speak to your experience of in, in the work you do or individually, like what that is, how it shows up and what, what some blind spots for Jews who are only used to being with other Ashkenazi Jews might have. Yeah. So I think, thank you. I think just thinking about how I want to answer this and I think it will roll into it to some just thoughts I was having. Um, yeah. Listening to Candy, et cetera. Um, so Ashka, so one, one to define Ashkenormativity, which is, you know, a combination of Ashkenazi normativity, right? Um, which is the uh, uh, prevailing conscious or subconscious assumption that all Jews and, and then you know, in the United States are Ashkenazi, meaning, you know, coming from European origin, basically, um, not counting Spain, um, those are Sephardi, um, which, is, which is based in part on some historical truth, which is that the largest, the largest population, the largest waves of immigration, for sure, were from, from Germany and Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, which are Ashkenazi Jews. Um, and then there's ways in which that's baked into all of our religious and cultural and political institutions throughout the Jewish world, um, in which you know becomes sort of a self, it becomes sort of like a self-fulfilling loop as well, which is that that becomes where it's like when that becomes the lens, there are blinders on, and it's the sort of thing you start building things for one community because you think that that's the only people who are part of it, and it becomes increasingly exclusive to those who aren't part of it because they aren't even being kept in mind, right? Um, so that's just a, a general truth. And then the community of, of non-Ashkenormative Jews, which includes Jew, Jews of color, which is shorthand for people of color who are also Jewish, um, which has a lot of different ways you can define that. Um, but, but for sure, folks who generally consider themselves to be non-white. Um, sometimes that includes Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews. It depends on how folks you know, self-identify, but there's a whole world of like non-Ashkenazi Jews, right? And, and a whole rich tapestry of what that means for um, the different cultural and spiritual, et cetera, you know, aspects that we're bringing into the community. Um, so I think, so to weave that into then this conversation about environmental justice, um, I think that one of the things that we, the, the broad general American Jewish we, um, there, and there's pockets of this that are starting to, to really happen in beautiful ways, but one of the things that I think we really need to reckon with in order to make our, our communities more equitable and just and whole, right, is to recognize the ways in which um, we are reeling from ancestral trauma 
that continues to play out and impacts again, on the personal level, on the interpersonal, on the structure communal levels, the ways in which we are like building our communities, that we're interacting with each other, that we're, we're perpetuating harm because of trauma we've received, right? And are holding in our bodies. Um, and, the way that, and the way that relates to how we, you know, relate to other communities who are not Jewish, like all of those things. And I think, um, and specifically in the Ashkenazi world, we're talking about like the entire history of like the Holocaust and pogroms leading up to it, which are just like deeply embedded in both the literal DNA of Ashkenazi Jews and also in our cultural DNA, right? Regardless of like where you sort of come from. Um, but I think that there are ways in which Judaism since its very inception has held both um, the sort of beautiful pieces of Judaism and Jewish tradition, right? Of like, how do we develop these strong relationships? And also like the trauma. And I think something that I've been thinking about because then we're talking about the question of indigeneity, right? And what is it like indigenous relationship to land, land back to indigenous folks, like that's this thread. Um, and it's something there's like, there's this general conversation of like, are Jews indigenous? And there's political ramifications to that vis-a-vis -vis like Israel-Palestine that are really significant. But I think something that's kind of funny that doesn't even come up. And I actually, it, this is literally as I was, came to my mind in the last few minutes is like, I usually talk about, about Jews as, as having a historically, a historically indigenous relationship to the land that we now call Israel, right? Israel-Palestine, land of Canaan. And I, and I think that in large part that's true. And <laughs> the first Jew, Abraham, was not indigenous to that land. Like the entire story started because he came from somewhere else and like came to that. So like, I mean, I think on the one hand, you could argue that on some level there, that, that is a fundamental human story. It's not the, but it's a, there's many fundamental human stories, which is what does it mean to be, to journey, right? That, that like migration movement, like that's part of like humans over the last eons have moved like, right? That's a, that's a fundamental story. Um, and I think one lens that you can look through Judaism is like grappling, wrestling with, we like our Abraham and Sarah, like our, our, the parents of our whole people came from somewhere else and we're looking for a new home in the physical sense, the ecological sense, the spiritual sense. And we're grappling with how do we do that in a way that is just and equitable and holds our ideals knowing that like, shit happens along the way. Sorry for the podcast, you might have to bleep that out, right? And like, there's a lot of also blood and violence in the Torah, in our story, right? And we need to hold those alongside the like, oh, Paya is an amazing practice, right? Like our agricultural justice, like, yes. And like post-slavery, talk about trauma, right? Which formed us as a people, we came and like re, and like, David conquered Jerusalem, right? Like all of this stuff is woven into our history. And like, that's not, that's not the ideal I wanna hold in terms of like my relationship to lands that I'm not myself native to, right? But we also have to hold to the ways in which that has been part of our history as well. And so I think that's part of this ongoing question to me of how do we, and I think this is a Jewish question and it's a, and it's a big question for kind of all, of all of humanity in large part because of the world as it exists is how do we 
reconnect and and return to our better selves knowing that like we can't we cannot literally turn the clock back on colonization like it happened right but we can impact how we move forward right and so how do we connect our own personal how do we how do we forge our own personal deep connections with place with the ecology with social cultural who do we learn from who do we build relationship with who do we sort of center as teachers right which should very much be include the people who are indigenous to these places because there's a ton of memory and also just respect that we owe to those folks how do we right allocate resources um, in that direction, all of those things. But I think to me, that's sort of a fundamental question and thread that really has woven throughout Judaism and like Judaism as a, as a people in diaspora, where sort of questions like, what does it mean to be like sort of spread throughout the whole world? And like, how do we hold those balance of like rootedness and memory and journey and loss and grief and, and all of those things? Mm. Thank you, Yoshi, for taking my, my very narrow question and answering a much broader question that I wish I had asked because it, it brought up so much other stuff that I want to explore. Um, yeah, I mean, just right off the top of my head, you know, that I think there's this idea that indigeneity, like to be indigenous is like you're, you're the people who have always been somewhere. And, and I appreciate you kind of complicating that narrative that like humans have always migrated. Um, you know, certainly in the Jewish story, like like you said, Abraham or, or the Exodus, like migration and settling new places is just like core to who we are. And that kind of set the template for the last 3000 years. And, and even, you know, here on Turtle Island, right? It's like different nations move from place to place. So indigeneity is not necessarily just like, we've been here since the beginning of time as much as maybe it's something around like longevity combined with wisdom, of, of how to relate to land, whatever land you're on. I don't know, I'm, I'm curious, Candy, if you have any, any thoughts about this too. Honestly, um, I, 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 when Yoshi mentioned it a couple of questions ago, um, it, when he was talking a little bit about how, you know, the Jewish connection to this seven year practice is critical in our vision. Um, I started thinking about how connection to our roots, no matter where, where those roots are, is the biggest like hurdle within ourselves um, to be able to connect to a movement of, of protecting the land. Um, when we look at white people um, or the construction of whiteness, the construction of whiteness erased people's connection to themselves, to their cultures, to their communities, no matter where it was. And so, you know, Jewish people are one of the subsets of whiteness that I think do still have a very um, strong connection to their ancestral practices and the pieces of their identity that made them human. Um, there are many other subsets within um, constructed whiteness that don't have a direct link to who they are. And so when you don't have a link to who you are, regardless of what lands it is, regardless of um, what peoples it is, it's easier to strip others of their humanity and not be connected to the land. 
And so I think it's about wherever you're from, whatever land you came from, whatever peoples you came from, if you don't know them, if you can't figure out how to tap into that um, ancestral memory, that ancestral purpose, uh, that ancestral knowledge, it's going to make it difficult for, for people to join in this fight and to fight in a way that, you know, is liberatory. And, and what I'm kind of hearing, Candy, is that the flip side to that is that when you do have that connection, whether, you know, you're Jewish or not, whether you're white or not, you know, wherever you're from, but when, when you're able to really tap into that deep ancestral connection to whatever your ancestors were, then that gives you this kind of much deeper fuel or source for courage or confidence to be able to fight for what, you know, we, we know our communities need. Um, at least that's yeah. what I'm taking away from what you're saying. Yeah, it's definitely that. It's the deeper root, but also that shorter, that shorter connection to other people mm. who are connected to their source. Um, yeah. If we don't, if we don't see that in ourselves, it's harder to like value that when we see it in somebody else. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. And I think just to speak to that, I think one just to that, to that, it's sort of we hope we have the trauma that we've inherited, and we have the resource that we've inherited. Yeah. And sometimes we overly focus, you know, on the trauma and forget the re, you know. So we need to hold both. Um, and and also just to the point about whiteness. Um, you know, I've been doing a lot of uh, learning recently from Resma Menachem, um, and uh, who's, who's really doing this amazing work on, on somatic abolitionism. And one of the things I think one of the things that's really interesting that Resma talks about is it, that that pattern of whiteness and of violence is that like most of the white people in this country, their 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 roots are from people who are fleeing violence and persecution right and just in general like europe like the dark ages right europe went through centuries of white people white on white violence right of like you know all european folks right in these sub segments of course but like doing horrifically violent things to each other and so there's all this sort of epigenetic um research that is going back that sort of says we've got seven generations of just sort of direct epigenetic um, aspects that encode in our DNA that we're still that are still part of who we are. So like that's all still present for for white folks, right? Um, in in all those different ways. And so they are they we the parts of us, right? The, you know, and we also have our internalized like even for people of color, we have our internalized racism, our internalized colonizer, right? Where we have those traumas that then we perpetuate on others unless we do that work of addressing the harm and going through the process of healing, right? And so I think, yeah, so that we've got this, this history of folks who have had violence done unto them who haven't gone through that process and then are approaching from a traumatized, you know, scarcity mindset of inflicting the violence upon others, right? And, and sort of, um, and, then, and then not, not sort of saying, oh, like maybe there's another way to be. And maybe we should learn, you know, here are folks that write for centuries upon centuries, millennia, right, have had relationship with this land and place. And, you know, not that there haven't been conflicts and violence, right, but not on the scale of like colonization, you know, that, you know, um, like, 
perhaps we can learn from those people, <laughs> right? Um, and, and sort of reset our own relationship to ourselves and to each other and communities in place. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I love how, how y'all have so deftly kind of woven all of these different threads together of, of land and heritage and race and indigeneity. And, and I wanna keep kind of tugging on those, but I'm, I'm noticing that we're actually just about at the end of our, our conversation. So uh, I, I do wanna make sure we set aside a couple minutes for each of you to share any um, kind of opportunities, any ways for people to plug into to the work you're doing um, you know, shameless plugs, um, anything like that. How, how can folks keep supporting the, the really important change making that, that y'all are each involved in? I'll let you go first, Yoshi, because I got a long list. <laughs> great, I love that because then you get the last word, which is great. Um, so I'll say two, two main things. One is, um, you know, I think this whole, this whole series has been a part of it, um, but I think this Shemitah year, we have this real opportunity in the Jewish community and given just the, the overall, you know, everything happening in society, et cetera, and people really thinking differently about racial justice, et cetera, to think about how do we use this year of Shemitah to, to catalyze and deepen the, our relationship to other communities, to certainly to Jews of color in our own communities, but also to other communities of color, to indigenous communities, et cetera, and really start to think about the personal and interpersonal and structural and thinking about what's our relationship, right? So um, if, if communities don't have existing relationships, Jewish communities with indigenous communities, perfect time to start. Use Shemitah as an excuse, like start to build those relationships. If you already have them, then obviously deepen those and then start to think structural policy like, what are, how can we start to really think about what does it mean? We as Jews know what it means to have disconnection from land, et cetera. Like we've been, you know, we're grappling this for thousands of years. Like how do we use that as inspiration to be in community with other folks and start to think about what that means through, and you know, there, we've got a lot of literal acres of land under Jewish ownership in this country. Like what does it mean to start a process where we are maybe in some cases literally giving some of that land back and you know, maybe we're bringing indigenous folks like on around the table of boards and everything, but to have, right, to give greater sovereignty and ownership over what is at least what's happening with the land. And in some cases, literally giving it back. Um, so just really think about that over this Shemitah year to kickstart and then obviously continue. The last thing I'll say real quick is we, Mitsui Collective, which is funny, I've, this is 58 minutes in, 59, and I haven't even said the actual mission of the organization that I, that I run. Our work is to build resilient community through embodied Jewish practice and racial equity. So that's Mitsui Collective. We have a, a festival coming up for Tuba Av, which is the 15th of Av, which is the sort of Jewish holiday of love. Our theme this year is the ecology of love. And so we're looking at um, sort of self, love of self, interpersonal relationships, community and earth. Um, we've got a virtual summit so folks can come on and we've got a bunch of great people throughout the week leading up. And then anyone who's in the area, we do have a local festival on that Saturday for Tubab itself. So would love for folks to check that out. Thank you. Awesome. And, and I just wanna underscore um, a word that Yoshi used and it's sovereignty. Um, everything, sovereignty in my opinion is the opposite of colonization. And so if we're dismantling um, or decolonizing, the end goal is sovereignty. And so our office is trying to, like I said earlier, create the infrastructure 
um, for sovereignty, for self-governed communities, um, if and when we get there uh, formally. And so we've got stakeholder groups. If you don't watch city council every Monday night at 5 p.m., um, you should start. It's on public television. And there's always, every single Monday, an opportunity for you to plug in, for you to comment on anything your heart desires. Um, it's important, like I said, to know the structures that are governing, governing our lives and perpetuating the exploitation that we experience. And if you want to ever dismantle that, you have to understand how it works. And so Monday nights are the ways to plug in, but our office has several stakeholder groups um, working on community bills of rights um, around environmental stuff, uh, trespass pollution laws, uh, we're also trying to create um, the first community-owned grocery store in a food desert here. Um, and Adam, you know all about that. So we're, we're, we're looking for all the expertise in all of those areas. Um, and if there's a stakeholder group that we don't have that you think should exist, we are about co-governance. So join us, let us know what it is, and we'll start it up. And I'll put my information in the chat for you all to reach us. I also put the GES coalition link in there. Um, that's the community group that has launched the land back campaign. And so definitely plug in with them, they're leading it. So um, they can give you guys more informa information about how to plug in and um, show some solidarity there as well. Amazing. Thank you both so much once again um, for just such an enriching and enlivening conversation. Um, we're definitely uh, excited to keep following your work and supporting as we can. Um, in the meantime, um, hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. And um, thank you all uh, as listeners, uh, whether you're, you're here with us live right now or listening on the podcast later. Um, really appreciate your time and attention and love and hope this inspires you to shape your change for a better world. <laughs>